Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by psychotherapist Louis Weinstock. Louis works with children and he also helps all of us to better understand the child within us. He is also the author of How the World is Making Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. Louis, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I cannot wait. I find this whole topic, your whole book, the work that you do so, so fascinating. And, you know, as a parent in 2022, you know, I am a parent myself, but for any parent or even non-parents, you know, in 2022, I think there are so many different things for young people, for children, whether they're age eight, 11, 16, there are so many different challenges that we're all facing at the moment. And so much of so much of it, I think that some people would probably question whether they even want to have children at all, given all of the different things that are going on. Mm. But before we dive into all of my questions and, and the work and the book, I think, yeah, I guess I'd love to start with, you know, the, the idea of the child within all of us and the fact that if you're listening to this podcast and maybe you're not a parent yourself, you may have parents yourself, or you may be thinking about one day becoming a parent. So I know that if you sit down with a psychotherapist, typically the first thing that they will do is ask you about your childhood. They might ask you about how you grew up or who, who you grew up with. And we know that that can inform so much of our future, who we are, the work that we choose to do, the people that we're attracted to, you know, the kind of personality traits that we develop. So I think I'd really like to start there and to ask you, Louis, why is it so important for us to to look back as well, you know, to, to look back at our childhoods, to understand um, ourselves as younger people and how that can inform who we are today? Thank you. Good question to get started with. Um, so we're sort of born into this world with certain basic needs um, as human beings. You know, we need to be loved, we need to be held, we need to be fed, we need to have fun, we need to be able to play. And uh, for pretty much everyone at various points in our childhoods, our needs don't get met. And sometimes it can be mild, like, um, you know, we might have a, a slightly more critical parent uh, and that can affect us and we carry that with us or we might have problems with our siblings and it can be more extreme you know so many people have ad what's known as adverse childhood experiences where they experience trauma or abuse or um, they might have a parent with a mental health problem and essentially what happens in is when we have those kind of experiences whether they're mild or more extreme parts of ourselves kind of get frozen in time. This is how I would explain it. And then those parts would bring them into adulthood. So it's like we carry all these different parts of us, like different inner children, you could say. And they affect our adult lives because they haven't had their needs met. 
So a big part of the work that I do and uh, a lot of what I talk about in the book is how can we heal those parts of ourselves as grown-ups that didn't get the love and the affection that they needed so that we don't pass on those things to our children. Yeah, as I said, I find this whole topic fascinating, but I'll be honest, I think as someone who I very much like to look forward, I like to look to the future, I like to believe that what is possible for ourselves and, and for our lives, we can you know, change and we can all evolve and grow. And if something in the past may be good or bad, you know, I don't, I never want people to kind of get stuck and, and think actually, you know, that's just defines, that's going to define me forever. That's just who I am. Or, you know, maybe I didn't have access to this thing, or maybe I didn't have parents that supported that, or maybe I was just never good at sports. You know, those kind of limiting things that we, that we can believe about ourselves because of how we grew up or the labels that we were given. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, what would you say about that? If you, if it's important for us to understand the experiences that we had, how can we make sure that they don't define our future? Well, the way I work, and I find this to be really, really effective, is I don't just spend time sort of talking about the past, which I think is sort of a maybe a slightly stereotypical idea that people have of what therapy is about. Um, but as I mentioned in a chapter in the book, the world of therapy now is kind of uh, progressing into much more what's called embodied or somatic work, because we know that sort of these old uh, patterns and traumas get stored in our body. So uh, in terms of your the part of your question where you're talking about sort of getting stuck in the past and in the story of the past and not letting that define us, I very much believe, and this is how I work with people, guiding them to find the places in their body where they might be carrying this stuff and through some really very simple practices like bringing some compassion and some healing to those parts. And it's incredible to see how much people can find a sense of relief and peace from tensions and stresses and all sorts of things that they might be experiencing. And very often they experience that relief instantly. So for me, a sort of a very general answer to that question is uh, we, we don't need to be defined by our past, but we have to acknowledge its presence and particularly how it plays out in our body more than anything else, I would say. Yeah. And as someone who, you know, I work in the health and wellbeing space and I definitely, yeah, of course, I'm an advocate that the mind and body is so connected. And when we talk about physical health and mental health, you know, I'm the first one to say those two things are interlinked. You cannot separate one from the other. And so, yes, I think the idea of somatic healing and how much our physical body impacts our mind and how much you know we can yeah carry whether that's attention or even an illness or disease i i really yeah i think it's great actually that there's such a spotlight on that now and that people are not only more open to that but really there's there's research to support it you know practitioners are saying we need to listen to this because would you agree that you know you've had you've got 20 years of experience would you agree that maybe 10 15 20 years ago people would have been a bit they thought maybe it was a little bit woo woo to say oh your mind and body is connected <laughs> it's so funny because um my uh wife sometimes has uh daytime tv on and she watches this morning and things like that while she's working she runs a business from home and uh, i was in the kitchen the other day and i can't remember which program it was but they had an astrologer on this mainstream tv show who was talking about doing affirmations around the full moon and i just like wow Things have really moved on in terms of like how open people are to this stuff. But um, but when it comes to the sort of body-mind connection, you're right, like really 
the sort of uh, science really demonstrates quite clearly and just experiences that I have and when I work with people that there is just this, there's not really a separation between the mind and the body, they're just one. And um, interestingly, uh, for me anyway, the sort of the idea that the mind is separate from the body has a whole history and it can be quite sort of tied up with um, uh, sort of that patriarchal sort of society where men have been dominant for a long time and uh, typically if we think about um, women and the feminine and this is a bit of a generalization there's more of a natural connection to the body I mean especially if you've been through childbirth right Mm -hmm. oh I mean absolutely that's yeah I think the idea of the mind the body the appreciation for the body actually the appreciation that it's you, it blows your mind. You literally can't believe. I feel like when I gave birth to my son, it was a long time ago. I felt like mm. I was the first human being, the only person ever to have <laughs> created life. I just look, you can't believe it. You just look at this human and you're thinking yesterday that human didn't exist. And today here they are. It is really, I know it's silly because pe- people give birth every day, but it is. I think when you go through that experience or witness that experience, yeah, you are forever changed. I think we just don't appreciate uh, anywhere near as much as we should how amazing our bodies are. You know, they're like really, really intelligent and they've evolved over like hundreds of thousands of years. And that's my big thing really is like, let's really uh, start listening more to our bodies. I mean, it sounds really simple in a way, but particularly with my work with children, very often uh, I have found that their symptoms, whether it's psychological or a physical sort of illness, uh, very often it is uh, their body's way of trying to communicate something that's not right in the world around them. Mm. Uh, And just to give you a a small example, uh, a a few months ago I ran a grief workshop for young people. It's one of the things that I do. And uh, afterwards one of these young people came up to me and he was like, he just couldn't believe it because he'd had this IBS symptom and uh, diagnosis for a few years. And he said after grieving in this workshop, and he had his own story about his grief, he said he felt relief from the symptoms for the first time in a long time. And that's just like um, a small example of, um, you know, how we need to listen to our bodies and and give them what they need, really. Mm. Yeah, and it's incredibly powerful. And, you know, some of these things like grief, you know, so I suppose there's some things that unfortunately we will all experience and whether that's, you know, the grief of losing a loved one, whether it's maybe just change, you know, uncertainty the last few years with the pandemic, fear, all these different things. And actually, I think, you know, I mentioned at the start about some of the universal things that I hear all parents talking about. And one of the main ones is technology, our use of technology, not just social media, but just devices in general, you know, whether that's kids, you know, on on iPads with their headphones on at a dinner table, or whether it's constantly messaging friends, you know, as they're getting older, if they've got social media, or whether it's just, uh, even as adults to constantly having the need to take photos, to take videos, to document, to share. There's so much in there that I honestly, I feel like we could talk for a whole hour about that. But <laughs> given that you've given that you've had 20 years of experience, you know, 20 years ago, children didn't have phones. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have iPads and headphones. So they could just sit in their own bubble at the dinner table or on a flight. So I guess, where do we start with that topic for young people or for, yeah, for young people, what do you see the biggest changes? What have the biggest changes been from when you were practicing 15 years ago to today? 
Well, I sort of remember a time when I was um, coming back from, I think it was probably primary school, because I remember coming back and having really busy days and there's so much going on and so much to absorb, not just like the education stuff, but the emotional stuff as well, right? I remember coming home and lying down on the couch and watching, I think it was like Neighbours or something like that. And quite often I would just fall asleep because I um, needed to, like my body needed to process what had gone on during the day. And what's definitely different now is it's much, much harder to switch off. It's much harder to stop and to let our bodies process whatever we've experienced during the day. I remember when I was running a, a therapeutic school for teenagers who've experienced complex trauma. And um, this was going back probably 10 years, I think now. Uh, I think it was the time when, uh, it seems hard to believe this, but there was a time when Blackberries were kind of the cool phone to have. And it was like the first smartphone. And I remember very clearly a girl who was in our school who was one of the first to have a Blackberry. And I remember her, she came in one morning and she was absolutely exhausted and she just couldn't concentrate on anything. And when I was chatting with her, she said, well, I just slept with my with my uh, Blackberry under my pillow and I just couldn't sleep because it was pinging all night with these messages. And I just, I was really worried that if I switched off, I would miss out on something. Or she said, I'd worry that somebody uh, through these messages might be saying something bad about me. So it's that kind of fear of missing out and also fear of sort of that cyberbullying thing that she was carrying. And she was absolutely exhausted. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, it's probably the tip of the iceberg now. I think, you know, even as adults, let's be honest, it can be difficult. I speak to a lot of people in, you know, different organizations and businesses, and often they'll say, you know, I'm burnt out because I can't switch off from my work. Wherever I go, my work is there in my pocket because I've got my emails, I've got WhatsApp messages, you know, there's always a way for me to feel as though I'm available. And then, yeah, for young people to feel like, okay, I don't want to miss out, I want to message people, but also this constant dopamine hit in the brain if we're just you know watching video after video after video there's so many things probably actually going on there and in the book you know there's a part where you talk about narcissism and this was something you know this was kind of two dots that I'd never connected before and well firstly I think before I dive into my question about that could you maybe explain what narcissism is and what it isn't because I think that when I hear the word narcissism I just think about quite like power hungry people that are pretty self-obsessed who you know fixated on themselves and are pretty toxic to be around is would you say that's a good description or am i getting it uh, is that just like the kind of extreme version of narcissism well there's the there's the sort of general uh sort of description that the public use and then there's the more clinical definition of it and of course there's a, with all of these things there's like a spectrum from mild to acute and uh, at the acute end, there's uh, something, a diagnosis called narcissistic personality disorder. And that's when somebody's very, very disturbed and um, so focused on themselves, taking all the resources for themselves, can't connect empathically with other people and can often be, um, you know, the typical sort of example of that from the world of movies and media would be American Psychopath. Mm. Um, but I think what I uh, believe uh, is we all have a inner narcissist like it's not a bad thing and I use the story in the book of my daughter when she was just learned to ride a scooter and she was in a scooter park in, near us and 
she was uh, going up and down this little ramp and she was sticking her, her, her legs in the air and screaming out, look at me, look at me. You know, she was what she was doing, what we would call showing off. Right. And if you're being very, very judgmental, you might say, oh, wow, that's really narcissistic that. But when it's a child, you see, it's very, very normal. We don't really judge a child for having those traits and wanting to show off and wanting to be loved. There's a part of all of us that really just wants to be loved. And that's um, normal and that's okay. And in the book, I provide some really simple exercises to help people connect to that part of themselves. Because I believe, you know, we can sort of, it's easy to sort of blame social media, blame technology, and then we just keep on scrolling, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, we have to think about the reasons that technology and social media have managed to hook into us. And I think it's because they meet unmet parts of ourselves, and particularly, I feel there's a part of us that really just yearns to be loved, to be validated and to be in community. If we can find healthy ways to provide that for ourselves and for our children, we will be less addicted to these devices. Well, gosh, this is the thing. So this is why I said I hadn't connected those dots before. And also before I even moved to the the comment in the question, I should probably highlight the fact that I, you know, I'm self-aware enough to know that as someone who hosts their own podcast and who, you know, writes books Mm -hmm. and uses social media myself, I'm certainly not exempt from thinking there's clearly a part of me that wants to be heard and seen and, you know, Mm -hmm. validated. And like you said, this need for approval or need to be liked or listened to, I think we do all have that, of course, but for different reasons and to a different degree but the part that really stuck out stuck out to me the part that really stood out to me was a comment around generation me and that kind of saying that when we're giving young people this I guess ability to create a spotlight for themselves so for example a lot of people a lot of young people in my son's class so my son's 11 when you ask them you know what do they want to do when they're older they have a real they equate fame with success so where before maybe i don't know maybe 50 years ago where a child might have said i want to be an artist or i want to be an, an athlete or or a footballer now they all have the word famous in front of it and i noticed that because they had they, they all had to write it down as they're leaving school you know what would you like to do when you're older which i don't really know why we ask children that question at such a young age it's bizarre <laughs> however a lot of the answers said i want to be a, a world famous artist or i want to be a famous footballer or a famous youtuber and it's this idea that now i think where we've given children you know photograph you, you know take pictures, videos, and a lot of people, if they are teenagers, you know, they're sharing, putting themselves. I heard someone say to, about a YouTuber, you know, you are the center, you are the the main character of your movie of your life. And I just thought, your life isn't a movie. You know, this whole idea, like make yourself the main character. I kind of got the sentiment, but this idea that we're making Generation Me, everything's about you, film yourself, photograph, edit yourself as well. It's very, yeah, it's a signal of change that I that is like a red flag to me that says, hang on a minute, every child in this class wants to be famous because they equate fame and adoration of others to success. Now, I don't know if that was the case when I was 11. I don't think that it was actually. There is um, some evidence uh, that uh, young people, uh, there was like a big study that was done in the US by this psychologist called Jean Twenger. And it did show that young people of this generation do seem to be more narcissistic and more focused on themselves, on on their fame and self-image and those kind of things. 
but I do want to sort of say the other side of it because uh, I recently went to this amazing festival where I did a workshop. It's called Wider Horizons. And um, it's a sort of healing festival for young adults. And I have to say, I was absolutely blown away by the young people there. They were so, um, what's, they were caring, compassionate. Uh, they weren't that focused on themselves. I mean, we all are to some extent, but I just had this feeling of inspiration and hope. It's easy to sort of get bogged down, isn't it, in the worries about what's happening to our kids. And uh, there are some worrying things, but I think it's important to sort of shine a bit of a spotlight. There are lots of amazing young people out there who are doing amazing things and being incredibly caring and compassionate, engaging in activism and caring about the climate and going on marches and being really creative and also being self-aware about social media and the toxic effects of it. Wow. Okay. That is great to hear. Very hopeful and optimistic and yeah, really great to hear. Cause you're right. You know, we can, we can always, I think over, you know, focus on the, you know, the doom and gloom, as you said, of social mm. media and blame social media. And to be honest, I'm often the person that will say, you know, the huge benefits of tech and innovation in my experience outweigh the, the kind of doom and gloom side. However, of course it's very nuanced. And yeah, I think as a, as a parent of a young child and for many people um, who I know that is just a constant, it's a constant topic every single day about policing it, you know, how much should they let them use, use mm. it, not use it. It's just a minefield. So it's oh, good no. to know actually, and to hear from an expert that it's not all bad and actually young people that, you know, they're very resilient as well. And we adapt quickly. Um, but the next topic, next big topic that I have for you is about parent guilt. So again, I don't want to make this all about me and my experience because this <laughs> show is not about me. So parent guilt, what is parent guilt? Why do we all, I think, experience it? And let's maybe get some optimism about what we can do about that. Yes, let's get some optimism. I love that. <laughs> um, so guilt, um, I mean, it's probably helpful to just talk very briefly about um, guilt in general first, because there's these two words, guilt and shame, uh, to describe two kind of emotional states, you could say. And uh, they're helpful uh, words and they're slightly different. Guilt is typically sort of uh, when we know and have a feeling we've done something wrong and we want to try and do better next time. Shame is the feeling that we've done something wrong and we're going to be judged for it or bullied for it or criticised for it. And we, we sort of have a feeling that it's something wrong with us rather than just being able to reflect on the behaviour. There's something wrong with us. And I think parents have a lot of guilt and shame, to be honest. Uh, mm. And I think it's, uh, it's uh, to a large extent, it's helpful to think back to our childhoods and, th and think back to our experiences growing up with our parents in our schools, thinking about those experiences we might have had where we might have felt uh, made to feel ashamed for doing something wrong or differently. And then there's the, um, the social pressures, which I really go into this in the book because I really feel this and I'm really concerned about this. Uh, we basically live in a, a society that is based on the feeling that you have to constantly, constantly be growing and getting better. And it's basically driven by this fear of scarcity that we're never enough. Mm. And that really applies to parents hugely. 
And um, of course, there are many amazing sort of parenting books out there. And I'm sure you've read some that you find incredibly helpful. I'm sure not as helpful as mine, by the way. But um, um, but I also worry a bit that a lot of these books that you see out there promote these sort of false ideals of how perfect your child should be. So, like you know, there's titles like uh, The Perfect, Happy, Contented Little Baby and things like that. I'm sure you've seen titles like that. Mm-hmm. When actually what we really, really need uh, as parents is we need solidarity with other parents to know that we're all in this together. Most of the time, we really don't know what we're doing, and it's okay to just acknowledge that. And we're muddling through, and we're doing the best that we can. And sometimes we get it wrong, and that's okay. And um, you know, like I have a, an exercise in the book, which is just helping the readers to really feel in their bodies, like have a really deep feeling that they are enough. And I think for parents, that's just so important because, as you uh, really rightly pointed out, that sort of the the guilt and the shame can be so strong. Yeah, and I think, you know, we took, you said then about it's important to look back to our childhood, and maybe this is just me. I, I when I when I do that or when I speak to people about that, they often go to the negative things. So they'll say, oh well, you know, if their mum didn't do this or if their dad didn't do that or you know this teacher made me feel like that, and we they drawn to the negative things. But actually, yeah, I think if you also flip that around and go, okay, what things about your experiences with your grandparents did you love what experiences as a child at your school did you really enjoy what are the fondest what are the best things that your mum or your dad ever said to you that made you feel like an absolute superstar when you were little what was that thing they said to you because even though it can be a small thing i sometimes think the impact we can have especially you know the work that teachers do is incredible but one a teacher can say a comment to a child and it can change your entire life because you're like wow that teacher said that i am for example i've got a beautiful singing voice you might go on to think you're the best singer ever because like you said at 8 years old you think oh, i'm the best and actually there's positives as well as just looking at the negative and i think the idea around the guilt you know always trying to I think that it's about exactly what you said around like, do your best, do your best. I think for me, it was always thinking, well, if you're doing your best, but what if your best isn't good enough? So like you said, with all these different parenting experts, or, you know, if your child isn't doing this or isn't doing that, maybe, you know, their personalities are different. And that's the thing, isn't yeah. it? When you have two or three children, you can raise them in the same house, you could have the same parenting style, they could have the same opportunities mm-hmm. and they're, they're, personalities and their response to different things can be so different like chalk and cheese so i think yeah that idea that your best is your best and that for your child what that child needs just i don't know how you give parents the confidence to know that every child's so different that what you're doing for one might work perfectly and then with child number two you're like this is a disaster i'm doing it all wrong Well, uh, first, can I just say, please, Adrienne, that when you were sharing that really lovely uh, reflection on how we can actually actively look back to memories and experiences that we might have had as children that were positive, that just really moved me. And uh, so I just wanted to really acknowledge that. And I think that is so important. We can actually actively do that. And it's important to say for some people that might be difficult. But for the majority of people, we can actually find just that one memory, uh, that one moment, as you say, whether it's with a grandparent or a teacher where we felt loved, we felt enough, we felt supported, we felt encouraged. And, and, you know, you're so right uh, to sort of bring in that note of optimism because we can easily get stuck in 
that sort of victim mode and looking back to the past for all the things that went wrong. But actually, we can be empowered to look back and find those memories and activate those in ourselves. And actually, uh, you know, we could talk a bit more if you want to, but we have these cis biological systems, like we have this biological system of compassion that we can actually activate by bringing back some of these memories of times when we felt loved and supported. So again, it's just another uh, amazing uh, thing about our human biology that we can really tap into. And then just one more thing, I know I'm uh, going on about this a bit, but um, you sort of said, so how do you encourage parents if they have uh, children who are different and one struggling or you know that kind of thing? My approach is always to trust and empower the parent or the person who I'm working with, even if, even if I'm working with a child or a young person. And that means I sort of tend to take a slightly more, um, uh, you know, it's kind of like a mixture between therapy and coaching. The, the thing that I really love about the coaching model is uh, as a coach, you kind of take away the idea that you are the expert. And you really trust that if you ask the right questions to the person in front of you, you can elicit their own inner wisdom. And uh, so I just wanted to say that that's just the, an approach that I believe in, because I really do trust that people, people know their kids and themselves mm. better than anyone else. And I worry a bit about the sort of system of mental health and parenting expertise, where we're constantly being told that, you know, somebody knows better about our own inner experience than we do. And it's just not right. Another thing that I think a lot of parents do maybe probably very unintentionally and, and this is i know before i became a parent maybe i would have had a different opinion but i see parents maybe when they have young children young babies and they think that the child is going to be a almost like a product or a project you know this idea that like oh if you do it like this they're going to turn out like that or the problem to be fixed or you know if for example if you want them to be confident you're going to do these things if you want them to be outdoorsy you're going to do these things and honestly before i had a child myself i would have been like well of course you know your environment shapes you you know nurture blah 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 however <laughs> now i don't know how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture and i truly think sometimes you know my son i can look at certain traits of him and think oh my gosh, how are we even related? You know, like a good example would be that he's really laid back. He's in a mm -hmm. good negotiator. He's a diplomat, you know, and I think when I was his age, you know, I was definitely not a negotiator and a diplomat and I was not laid back. You know, I wanted to be, I don't know, I was a leader and I'd say, okay, listen to me. If there was a project, I'd volunteer myself to go to the front and to lead the way. That is not him at all. So I think how much of, you know, how, who we want our children to be, whether that's that we want them to be, as I said, outdoorsy and sporty, or whether we want them to be artistic and, and because we're those things, how much of it is nurture and the environment and how much of it is just who they are and there is nothing, you know, the cards and the, the genes that they have, regardless of whether we think that this come from us or maybe from some long lost relative. <laughs> well, this is uh, sort of like an age old question, really, you know, nature or nurture. Um, and, you know, I can't really give a scientific uh sort of uh, percentage answer to that uh, but i think you are absolutely right to share your experience in that message which is we can't just mold our children into the exact shape that we want them to be and when we try to do that we end up getting frustrated and creating suffering 
And um, in the book, uh, possibly one of my favorite parts, one of the favorite exercises is uh, uh, about loving what's most difficult to accept in our children. Mm. Uh, and the reason I love that exercise is because it really helps people. It, it's quite a radical shift in mindset. Um, very often when parents and children have um, issues in their relationship, there's very often something in the child and the, the way the child's presenting that's triggering the parent. Mm. And what doesn't happen enough and what I support people to do is to actually look at our triggers and try and shine a loving light on them so we can actually try and see our children in a different way. And um, so this exercise, loving what's most difficult uh, to accept in our children is really just about that. It's about identifying that one thing that you find the most difficult to accept in your child. And then I take people through a series of steps that allows them to start seeing that particular aspect of their child in a different way. And it really can be incredibly transformative. And we can do that with ourselves as well, which is also the other side of the coin, because very often what triggers us in our children is also an unloved part of ourselves. Mm, oh gosh, honestly, I love that. And I was actually thinking exactly that. I was thinking what a wonderful, as an adult, honestly, I know people who have such difficult relationships with their parents, um, especially, you know, for whatever reason, and they kind of put up with things and they go, oh, you know, my mom and she's always criticizing me or she always this or she always that. And I think I love this exercise to kind of flip this around and to go with compassion to somebody, if it is to your mom or your dad and to say, look, this thing that you're always, you know, whether it's the fact that they're always late or the fact that they always, I don't know, whatever the, the, the thing is that is difficult for them, going to them as, the, even if you're 45 years old or 25 years old as that child and saying, look, this is the thing I know frustrates you. This is the thing that we butt heads around. And actually, have you ever thought about flipping that around and seeing that that's who I am? And maybe that trait makes, you know, gives me the ability to do this or to do that. And it makes me who I am and stop trying to either change me or criticize me for that. Because I do feel as honestly, as a, as a mid thirties, you know, with lots of friends who are either becoming parents themselves, the relationships with their mothers, it's just such a difficult one. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's, it's so detrimental for a lot of young adults, I think, to just put up and I, I call it put, put up and shut up. It's like, they just put up with it and they don't say anything because they're like, Oh, it's my mom. It's my mom. And actually, you know, I'm all for like respect to your elders, but I also think as adults, we have a responsibility to kind of say, this is actually my life now and I'm an adult. And if you want to be a part of that life, maybe people might think it's a bit harsh, but I think if I'm going to invite someone to be a part of my life, whether they're a friend or a family member, then yeah, there has to be a conversation and an honest one. And if they can't engage in that, then yeah, maybe this book and maybe that exercise in particular could actually be a really transformative thing for them. Yes, and uh, I also just want to say, like, I really appreciate this conversation and how human it feels, because sometimes, you know, having these kinds of conversations, doing podcasts can feel a bit stilted, but I just really appreciate how human it feels. So thank you for that. And um, the only thing I wanted to add, really, to what you were saying, Adrienne, is um, just finding ways to build relationships of mutual respect. The only thing I'm a bit concerned about is there can be a bit of a tendency for young people in the age of Google to feel like they don't need elders anymore. Mm. And uh, it's really important that we find ways to mutually uh, respect each other. It's so important to teach our children that.
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really good point as well. So thank you for sharing that. And ditto. I've really, honestly, I'm enjoying this conversation so much. I'm conscious of your time, Louis. I know that you're busy and I appreciate you giving us your time today. So my final question for you, sadly, because I'm going to have to invite you back. I know I'm going to get so many people respond to this episode. So we're going to have to hopefully do another one. But my final question for you is about the concept of power hour. So I ask every single guest who comes onto the show to talk to us a little bit about what they do first thing in the morning and why they do it. Now I've been doing this for years and I've heard lots of different answers as you can imagine, and it's always fascinating and I'm always keen to hear and to learn. So tell us please, typically what time do you wake up in the morning and what do you choose to do with the first hour of your day? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Uh, so I'm not allowed to say that I look straight on my phone, am I? <laughs> well, if that's the truth, then, <laughs> then it's going to be honest. Well, no, I don't. I'm actually pretty good with that. Um, you know, I sort of feel it's important to say that I don't do my perfect mo- morning routine all the time, you know. But um, when I'm doing it well, I get up in bed, I uh, sit up and I set a timer on my phone. So I do go on my phone, but I set a timer using an app a meditation app and I meditate and I try and get that in before my daughter gets up. Uh, So it's quite hard to do a morning routine when you've got a young child. Uh, But when it goes well, it's a 20 minute meditation and I have different meditation practices, but I always like to end with uh, two things. Uh, One is going to sound a little bit strange, but it's, I find it's very effective uh, and it's actually Uh, turning towards things in myself or my life that might feel difficult to accept. Uh, uh, One word for this is a kind of shadow work type of practice that I bring into my meditation. And then I balance that out with a little bit of gratitude afterwards. Uh, Mm. The reason I do that, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but sometimes I find for myself and people I work with, like when they're just trying really hard to do gratitude, but it just doesn't feel true because there's such a big part of them that doesn't feel grateful. So sometimes we can get even more deep with our gratitude practice if we turn towards those parts first. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And yeah, to be honest, I think a lot of people probably it's like a breath of fresh air instead of just saying, you know, be positive, look at the bright, like you said, be grateful, be grateful. And trust me, I myself, you know, I encourage others to be grateful. I practice gratitude myself really for the small things, the small joys, you know, there's good in every day, but yeah, for sure. When you focus on something that is difficult, frustrating, you know, unfair, unjust, whatever that is, I think it's incredibly important to do that because those things exist. We can't just pretend, mm. you know, Oh, just don't look away. And it's, it's there. So yeah, mm. I really, I really like that actually. And yeah, again, if we had longer, we could talk about it more, but I think sometimes when I talk to people about appreciation of life, it's, it's often linked to face thinking about mortality, thinking about finitude and people don't like that. It's like, Oh, that's not very uplifting to think about death, but actually if you really want to experience the joy of your life, you need to, yeah, think about those things as well. So I'm all for the, the light and dark. 
Love it. And then there's not really uh, much else to add because I have a nearly five-year-old daughter. So if it's a really good morning and uh, I'm feeling up for it, she she sometimes comes in and wants to do fancy dress competitions in the morning. So that's pretty fun at the moment. We're trying to teach her not to not to feel like it has to be a competition every time. Uh, but uh, so she came up with a sort of funny thing where she's like, OK, well, uh, this time there's only one winner and next time there can be two winners. OK, um, I love this. I love this. And then that's pretty much it, to be honest. Uh, I do exercise. You know, I, I drop my daughter off and then I uh, run back uh, and um, that's it, really. Do you have to wear the fancy dress costume, whatever you've decided on, out of the house? <laughs> Fortunately not. She often does. I uh, definitely take it off. <laughs> oh, I wish, I hope one day that she'll, uh, that might be one of her new rules. You have to keep that on. Well, honestly, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like it's been a very personal session and, and, um, interview for me. So hopefully the listeners will have gained as much and and enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, I encourage you, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please do a deep dive, look further into Louis's work. Make sure, of course, that you get the book, How the World is Making Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. And Louis, where can people find you and follow your work? Uh, so I'm not really on social media much, but if people go to visit my website, they can sign up to my email list and they can get some really um, uh, beautiful meditations there. Uh, it's uh, my name, louiswinestock.com. Pretty easy. And uh, that's it, really. Brilliant. Thank you. And we can share a link to the website in the show notes as well. As always, stay safe, have an awesome week, and I'll be back next week with another episode. See you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.